Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in this series called Life, the Islamic Answer, in which we're trying to extract principles to live Islamically based on the teachings of the Holy Quran and the teachings that we find in the narrations of the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt, peace and blessings upon them. Skipping the uh, general recap to save some time, maybe just a couple of highlights from the last time that we met. There's perhaps two big notions that we were talking about. The first one has to do with the notion of community that started to emerge already. Um, and inshallah, as we said, this will be a topic to which we dedicate uh, a number of lectures, a series in the future. But for the time being, there is a number of narrations that we have already started seeing that address or contribute to the notion of community and community building. We saw, for instance, the narration that says that there are people who will enter paradise in the afterlife simply because they felt sorrow and grief for not being able to help with the affairs of a brother or sister in faith. And uh, generally speaking, I think we, the majority of us grew up hearing about how we have to do something to earn a reward or earn a punishment. And a number of the narrations that we started seeing are driving us in a different direction where it's not only limited to actually doing something or not doing something that is going to earn us a reward or a punishment, the intent behind doing or not doing. If I could do, then I would do, uh, is already enough, as we saw in a number of narrations, to deserve and to earn and to be worthy of a reward. And we saw in the case of the punishment, there is much more divine grace and divine mercy. Uh, so long as the actual act is not performed, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not counting this against us as a sin, as a disobedience, as an evil act even though the intention may be there. This is an uh, opposition to wanting to do good, wanting to spread good, even if we don't actually ever get to do it, we are still getting the reward, but we saw that there are some conditions. If you are limited somehow, if you cannot do it, if you were overtaken by sleep in some narrations, you are still getting the reward for that good intention. And of course, if we see that there are hadith that talk about someone entering paradise simply for this feeling in their heart that they were not able to help someone, that they hear that there's someone in the community, somewhere, someone around the world that may need help and they genuinely, sincerely wanted to help that person. And they feel the grief, the sorrow that they feel is genuine and sincere but they are not in any capacity to help that person, and that person who is feeling, experiencing this feeling, is going to enter paradise for that feeling. 
And understanding this is the link to our topic of community that inshallah we will get to. These are the types of narrations that make it clear that feeling that you belong and feeling that you want to help and feeling an identity to someone else is the exact foundation in our religion of being part of a community. And inshallah we're going to build on that much more later, but this is the beginning of it, so it's simply a matter of highlighting it. Then we took this a little bit further in some of the narrations that we started to look at when it comes to the notion of community. When we saw that through our intentions, the narrations are very clear that we are participating in the actions, in the deeds, in the behaviors of others. Those others may be alive now, simply elsewhere in the world. And so I would be counted as though I am someone contributing to whatever those people are doing through my intentions, even though I am not personally performing those actions myself. And in other cases, we saw that as Imam Ali السلام, was mentioning, or we saw in some of the ziyarat, we are participating with people who may have lived centuries ago. They are not only distant from us geographically, they're distant from us in time, very distant from us. And yet, we are asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bear witness that we are contributing to their actions and participating in their actions. Why? Because we have those same intentions. Because there's an identity, there's a similarity or an identity between our intentions and theirs. Had we been alive at that time, we would have done exactly what those other people did. So it's not really limited to what am I doing now? This is going to extend these notions of reward and punishment way beyond our general, traditional, classic understanding of uh, action and therefore uh, reward and punishment. And so on the one side, and that's our main topic, we're talking about intentions and their significance in our religion. But there's also the secondary topic here once again of community. So in the first case, there's someone who needs my help or someone who needs help and I can't help them. But they might be someone who's just next door, someone I'm sitting with and talking to. I hear about someone in the news. But there are other cases in which there are people who lived 14 centuries ago. In all of those cases, the narrations are very clear that I am participating through my intentions, even though the action is not there for all sorts of reasons, including simply not existing in a certain time or a certain place. But I'm still contributing. It's as though I am there. And therefore, I am getting the reward for participating through my intentions. And of course, this opens another topic. So in addition to the topic of community, which is now much broader than just the people I live with, now the community is clearly being extended to people who lived centuries ago, perhaps, but I am part of that community. They are part of me and I am part of them. Beyond that, in order to be able to participate in those actions, I need to acquire knowledge. And so this brings us back to the topic of knowledge and the importance of knowledge. How can I participate in the behavior of people if I don't know anything about them or their behavior or what they went through? I need to go out of my way 
and make the effort to learn, to gain the knowledge, to understand the history, to understand the characters of those people, to understand the difficulties that they faced, and to examine my intentions and to examine my beliefs and to examine my consciousness, would, what would I have done when I say those words? Oh, how I wish that I could have been present with you. When I say those words, to what extent do I really mean them? Do I really understand what those people were facing? And would that choice have been easy for me? And the only way to know this is to acquire knowledge first so that I can assess myself and see how clear is the truth. Because today it's very easy with hindsight, with 14 centuries of scholarship and you're bombarded and surrounded with all of the easy answers, you're being spoon-fed. We are living situations today that are not so easy to analyze and in which it may not always be entirely clear where the truth lies. Maybe in a century or two, it will be very easy for the people looking back at history and saying, they went completely wrong here. How come the people did not do the right thing? Because we're in the middle of it. So we have to go through the same exercise for ourselves, do this self-assessment, but this begins with knowledge. Constantly, no matter what we look at, it constantly brings us back to the first step, always and always being knowledge. Start with knowledge, and then you, had, you have to add these criteria to it, these conditions to it, that you have to do it with sincerity and the proper intentions, good intentions. And then, inshallah, next topic is what we're going to address. It must lead to action. It must be transformative and lead to action. The second big theme or topic that we talked about, and so simply to reiterate, and then we're going to build on it today, is the theme of, or the answer to the question, what, does these, what do these intentions look like? What does sincerity of intention look like? And we said we can look at it from two different angles. We can look at it as what it is, and we can also look at it at what it is not, right? And this knowing the answer to both of these is going to help us determine what those intentions, when we say you have good intentions, when you have sincerity, what does it look like? So some of the narrations that we started to look at, we began with the very foundation of our religion, the notion of shahada. When you say the shahada to enter into Islam, the ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, right? That's the first part of the shahada. That's it. You have entered into Islam. You have become a Muslim. And we saw that narrations clearly say those who say the Shahada and they say it with sincerity, they shall enter paradise. That's it. Everything else is becoming secondary or everything else becomes a derivative. It's being derived out of this Shahada. But the condition of saying this Shahada and entering paradise is that you say it with sincerity. And then the Holy Prophet and the Imams, we saw a number of ahadith, and there are many, many others. They say, but there's a condition. The condition is sincerity. And the Imams are asked, the Holy Prophet is asked, what does sincerity mean when I say Shahada? And we saw a number of ahadith that basically say, it is to avoid sins, to avoid disobedience of Allah. If you are able to do that, then you are sincere in your shahada. You are sincere in saying there is truly no God 
but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Otherwise, that weakness, otherwise that action that is a, an action that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers to be an act of disobedience means that you are, in fact, worshipping an other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالْعَيَاذُ بِاللَّهِ you are listening to another. You are following another. You are being directed by another. And that other can be society, social pressure. It could be your own desires. It could be your own ego. It could be and it could be and it could be. But in all those cases, to summarize it, our religion calls all of those things sins, disobedience. And the condition to saying the shahada and entering paradise the condition is that you say it with sincerity. So, shahada itself, tashahud, the true meaning of la ilaha illallah, is equal to ikhlas, is equal to the highest form of good intentions towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, exclusive, pure intentions for the reason for which you live. And that itself means it has to show in your conduct, it has to show in how you behave in this world equals action, right? What does it look like in action? It looks like staying away from sins. To the extent that you can have the discipline and the strength and the motivation and the drive and the knowledge to stay away from those sins, from acts of disobedience, to that extent, you are sincere in your shahada. You are sincere in your ikhlas. Those become equals. There's an identity here now. So shahada equals ikhlas. And ikhlas equals no sins. Okay, so I leave that for those of you who like formulas. That becomes clear. You link it back to Surah Al-Ikhlas. And you understand now why it's so important in our religion. Why it carries so much meaning. Because everything derives out of it. Okay, so inshallah we leave that. All, all of these topics inshallah we'll come back to later in much more depth. But this was one of the important parts or important points that we wanted to highlight from our last discussion. The idea that, you know, the hadith, for instance, tamamul ikhlas tajannubul ma'asi, tamamul ikhlas tajannubul maharam, to, to perfect, to have a complete ikhlas means to stay away from disobedience or to stay away from sins. Okay? And so. This was already a part to start understanding when we keep talking about intentions, intentions, good intentions, sincere intentions. What does it look like? Well, that's a foundation of it. That's one part of it. Okay? And I think for a lot of us, once again, we grow up and what we hear about religion, everything has to do with the, the rituals, the acts of worship, a ritual such as, you know, you perform the fast, you perform the actions, the movements of the prayer. You perform the movements and the physical movement to actually travel to perform the Hajj. And so on and so forth. Any ritual, any act of worship that you look at, we tend to focus on how are you supposed to perform it, what makes it valid or not, and so on and so forth. And so slowly here we're starting to see that there is something else that matters much more than the external appearance of this ritual. So this is the intent, this is the sincerity, this is the outcome. When I pray, what does it do? Of course, this always raises again and again the question, does it mean we don't pray? If I'm not, I'm not feeling anything when I pray, does it mean I don't pray? 
And we answered it, and inshallah we'll answer it again a few times. Of course not. If you understand anything from anything, everything that we've said until now, we're saying that you have to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you obey me through this means, through this act, through this ritual, then that's what you have to do. This is an underlying point or theme that we've talked about a lot in this series. In a lot of cases, we see that there are things that are difficult or there are conditions that have to be met for an act to really be counted as, truly be counted as having performed it, get the full benefit from it. In all of those cases, does it mean that I simply let it go if I feel that I'm not reaching that high standard? And we said in our religion, always the answer to this question is no. To explain the high standards does not mean that there are people who should say, oh, that's not me and I'm not reaching that standard, therefore I should just stop. It means you have to work harder. It means you have to understand how much of a shortcoming and where your shortcoming is, and you work on that. And the little that you do is always better than nothing. And a little bit more than you do, that's a huge step for you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you a lot for every little step that you make. So we, we talked about this topic from a variety of angles in the past. Never should you interpret anything that we're saying as, if this is not me, this is, does not apply to me, I'm not meeting the high standard, therefore I don't do it. Or paralysis, or going the other way. And we've talked about this again and again. The other way is only hell. There are no alternatives here. Okay? The only option we have is to keep moving in our way towards happiness in this world and the next, towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what He wants. To move the other way is not an option. Okay? So inshallah this part is clear. So with all of this said, I, I won't spend more time on this. With all of this said, let's jump into continuing where we left off with the, with the narrations, with the traditions, to help us understand what those intentions are, those sincere good intentions look like in this world and what they are and what they are not. Okay, so now we want to start looking at the narrations that help us explain, help us understand what they are not. Okay, we saw a few that tell us what they are. Now let's see what they are not. The Holy Prophet says, and I'm starting with this, it's a topic that I'm not going to delve into, I'm going to leave it with you guys. You will very easily make the analogies with what goes on in the world and how much we hear about this. These notions, for instance, of the sacred jihad, for instance. So I leave it to you to do the analysis and draw the analogies and the, and the linkages. But the ahadith, I think, are going to be very clear in this regard. The first one, the Holy Prophet says, إِنَّمَا يَبْعَثُ اللَّهُ الْمُقْتَتِلِينَ عَلَى الْنِيَاتِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise the fighters, those who fight in any fight, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise the fighters according to their intentions. So is it automatic that I'm on one side in a battle, in a fight, in a war, is it automatic that I go to heaven, for instance, because I participated in the fight? No. This is where we undo those mythical notions that we hear about. Our religion is much more nuanced than this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise the fighters according to their intentions. We're going to get into a lot more detail soon. Okay? But this notion that there's an automatic heaven, 
We have to review that notion. There's clearly here a condition. Let's look at another hadith. Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says in one of his sermons, he says, وَيَقُولُ الرَّجُلُ هَاجَرْتُ وَلَمْ يُهَاجَرْ So a man may say, I have migrated. I have performed the migration. But in fact, he has not migrated. Imam Ali alayhi salam is saying, وَلَمْ يُهَاجَرْ إِنَّمَا الْمُهَاجِرُونَ الَّذِينَ يَهْجُرُونَ السَّيِّئَاتِ وَلَمْ يَأْتُوا بِهَا Those who are truly the migrants, those who performed the migration, the hijrah, so can we become of those who have performed the hijrah? Is there thawab for having performed the hijrah or not? Of course there is. The Holy Quran refers to them. The traditions talk about them. How much reward those people got, how much they sacrificed for leaving their homes and their lives and joining the Holy Prophet, leaving Mecca and joining his migration. Of course, there is a material, physical, geographical migration that took place. But there's another migration that is taking place with the Holy Prophet. Imam is saying that's the true migration. So to keep in mind the previous discussion, can we join in this migration of the Holy Prophet or not? We'll see what the Imam is saying here. He says, For the migrants are those who leave behind evil deeds and who do not do them. A man may say, I have struggled or I have performed jihad when he has not truly struggled. True jihad, the true struggle, is to abstain from that which is forbidden and to fight the enemy. So if, that's, if we understand what this means, is the enemy always an external enemy? No, it's to stay away from evil. There's another enemy, much stronger than, much more dangerous than, much more of a threat than the external enemy. There's the shaitan, there's yourself, as we have in many narrations, and inshallah we're going to dedicate a number of a series to this topic of character building and understanding the soul and who we are and these different faculties we have. And there are people who fight, who like fighting, who desire nothing from their fighting except the reputation and the worldly rewards. And a man may fight out of his courageous nature, defending those that he knows and those that he does not know. And there might be a man who may cower and out of his coward or out of his cowardice or out of his coward nature. It's in his nature not to fight and to give up everything, to surrender to the point of handing over, giving up his own father and his mother to the enemy. 
So why is the first fighting? Because it's in his nature to fight. And he enjoys the fight. And in the second case, this person is a coward and he's not fighting because it's in his nature not to fight. Basically, the Imam is saying, the merit is not in fighting or not fighting. That's not what matters. وَإِنَّمَا الْقَتْلُ حَتْفٌ مِنَ الْحُتُوفِ To die by being killed, whether it's in war or elsewhere, in a battle or elsewhere, is one way to perish. It's one way to leave this world. It's one way to die. It's not the only one, and it may not be the best one. This is not the merit to kill or to be killed. That's what the Imam is saying. And then, in fact, in case all of this is not clear, as always, you can expect from Imam to be as clear as one can imagine. So we come back to the topic that the Holy Prophet explained in a few words earlier. Indeed, to each what they fought for. Why did you fight? What was the intent behind your fight? That's what you get. That's where your reward is, or your punishment is. And then the Imam says, Even the dog will fight to protect his family. So the merit is not in fighting or not fighting. The merit is, what's the intent behind it? Two completely different things. It completely undoes a lot of notions that we may hear and we may talk about, whether it's in the media, whether it's in our own communities, where, whether it, wherever it may be. These, this hadith undoes our even notions of the migration of the Holy Prophet, our understanding of what this struggle in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks like. Right? So the next hadith, and there's a number of ahadith that we could go here. This is one example. There are many, many ahadith that we can use to highlight these notions that these rituals that we have, these acts, these deeds that we have in our religion, they are not to be looked at as ends in themselves. The sacredness is not in the act in itself. Okay, and there are a number of hadith there. In general, for instance, the Holy Prophet ﷺ says, "In Allah Taala, la yanzuru ila ajsamikum," and in another hadith, he says, "Ila suwarikum." Allah Subhanahu wa Taala does not look at your bodies, at your external appearances, wala ila ahsabikum, nor does he look at your pedigree or your honorable ancestry, wala ila amwalikum, nor nor your wealth and your possessions. What he looks at, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, rather, he looks at your hearts. So whosoever has a good heart, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will treat them with kindness. Okay, so this is a reminder in general, but this applies to acts of worship too. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not looking at your physical body. The physical body is part of it, but it's secondary. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is looking at your heart and how much goodness is in that heart. Okay, so we tend to live our lives just like 
human beings in general do, geared and focused and obsessed at appearances and the outside. Okay, these hadith are meant to bring us back to the inside. An example from prayer. Very quickly, as I said, we could find examples of this for basically every kind of ritual and deed we have. We talked about jihad. Let's look, let's look at prayer. The Holy Prophet says, إِنَّ مِنَ الصَّلَاةِ لَمَا يُقْبَلُ نِصْفُهَا وَثُلُثُهَا وَرُبْعُهَا وَخُمْسُهَا Until he said, إِلَى الْعَشْرِ أو الْعُشْرِ One in ten parts. Allah, uh, the Holy Prophet says, there are prayers where only half of the prayer is accepted, or only a third, or only a quarter, or only a fifth, up to a tenth. وَإِنَّ مِنْهَا لَمَا يُلَفُّ كَمَا يُلَفُّ الثَّوْبُ الْخَلَقِ فَيُضْرَبُ بِهَا وَجْهُ صَاحِبِهَا And there are prayers that are going to be rolled up and as an old dress is rolled up, as an old rag is rolled up, then it is used to hit the face of its owner. It's a prayer. You performed a prayer. This person stood towards the Qibla, performed their wudu, and stood to pray towards the Qibla to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Holy Prophet is saying, maybe only a part of that prayer is going to be accepted, as little as a tenth of it. And there are prayers, the entire prayer is not accepted. The prayer, the Holy Prophet says, to give us this image, a very graphic, powerful image, the Holy Prophet says it's rolled up as an old rag, an old dress is rolled up, and it's used, the angel who, in other narrations we're told, it's an angel who brings the prayer up, sometimes it's told, keep it there, and sometimes it's told, bring it back, and hit it, hit it, hit him in the face with it. And so in this narration, it's clearly saying, لَمَا يُلَفُّ كَمَا يُلَفُّ الثَّوْبُ الْخَلَقِ فَيُضْرَبُ بِهَا وَجْهُ صَاحِبِهَا And then the face of its owner is going to be hit with that prayer. Okay? وَإِنَّمَا لَكَ مِنْ صَلَاتِكَ The Holy Prophet says, إِنَّمَا لَكَ مِنْ صَلَاتِكَ مَا أَقْبَلْتَ عَلَيْهِ بِقَلْبِكَ The part of the prayer which counts for you, which, which you really own and which is going to be of benefit to you, for which you're going to be rewarded, is the portion in which you were able to direct your heart towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In which you could have a presence of heart, presence of mind. You're actually praying and you knew that we were praying and that's what you were really doing. Not everything else that we tend to do when we pray. Okay? There's a part of this we can always say that still Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very just Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have said, you know, you missed two-thirds of this prayer with your distractions and preoccupations or you're showing, showing it off to someone. So it's all rejected. No, the Holy Prophet says, the part that you can at least guarantee, the part that at least you can have some presence of heart and mind in, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept that part. So it, there is divine justice here. But the rest of that prayer... This is about the notion of these rituals that we have in our religion. Is it really about the ritual? No, otherwise we wouldn't have these narrations that are very clear that what matters in the prayer is not that you were standing and then performing ruku and then performing sujood because this person, that's exactly what they did. And the end result was that the prayer was used to slap them back in the face with it. 
Okay, so it's not about the external ritual that you're performing. There's something else, and the Holy Prophet here says, the portion of the prayer that counts is the portion of the prayer in which you had presence of mind, presence of heart. Another narration, an example, another one. I'm sure many of you have heard this narration from Imam Ali alayhi salam. We have many of them. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, كَمْ مِنْ صَائِمٍ لَيْسَ لَهُ مِنْ صِيَامِهِ إِلَّا الْجُوعُ وَالضَّمَأِ How many are those who fast and whose fast is nothing but hunger and thirst? وَكَمْ مِنْ قَائِمٍ لَيْسَ لَهُ مِنْ قِيَامِهِ إِلَّا السَّهَرُ وَالْعَنَاءِ And how many are those who stay up at night, they are sleepless, and they are standing to worship, to pray, whose standing is nothing but staying awake, wakefulness, and hardship. They're getting tired from moving to perform the prayer. Nothing else is mattering here. They're not getting any reward for this, the Imam is saying. This person is fasting, this person is staying up at night to pray. The Imam says, it doesn't matter. And then the Imam adds, which brings us back to the topics that we've been talking about. How much better, the Imam says, is the sleep of those with intelligence and their eating and drinking. So someone could ask, so there can be a situation in which it's better to sleep than to stand for prayer? There can actually be a situation in which it's better to have your day eating and drinking instead of fasting? The Imam says yes. But he gave a condition. He called it al-akyas. People with intelligence. If you have intelligence, if you have knowledge and aql, which is the entire point from the beginning of the series, then sleeping, your state of sleep, is better than the state of wakefulness and prayer of someone else who lacks this. The same thing can be said about someone who fasts and someone who doesn't fast. Of course, we're not talking about obligatory fast, and of course, we're not talking about obligatory prayer. Okay? Next hadith. Reciting the Quran. The Holy Prophet, you will all know this. Or, and there are a number of these narrations. How many are those who recite the Quran while the Quran is cursing them? This is another shocking hadith for anyone who has not heard it, or if it's been a while that you've heard it. The external appearance of the act, it looks like a very good act. What else can be better than reciting the Holy Quran? And the Holy, the Holy Prophet says, this person is reciting the Quran and the Quran is cursing the person. Once again, so it's not about the external ritual. It's not about the external appearance of what is happening. Why would the Qur'an curse someone? Well, we can understand it at two levels. A first layer, a first level, consider the Qur'an as any other book. It contains information, it contains instructions. 
you have a verse of the Holy Quran that talks about helping the poor. There are people who can help the poor, but they don't. In fact, there are people not only who don't help the poor, they prevent others from helping the poor. The Quran talks about both categories. Do you think that if you sit there reciting the verse of the Quran that says, and you have to help the poor, when you do not help the poor, you think that the Holy Quran is going to be to your benefit here? No. Of course, these verses that you are clearly contradicting in the manner in which you live are going to be a reason for the Holy Quran to curse you. The Holy Quran says explicitly, do not backbite, do not do ghiba. If you recite the Holy Quran while backbiting, do you think that this is not going to apply to you? The Holy Quran says, do not neglect your prayer. You do not think that the Holy Quran is going to curse you while you recite the verse that says, do not neglect your prayer. So this is the, I consider this to be the more superficial understanding of the Holy Quran may curse the person who is reading it. This is the first layer. Consider the Quran as any other book that has instructions. If you are contradicting those instructions, metaphorically and indirectly, you are going against what is being said in that book. The deeper meaning of this is to really understand that the Holy Quran, as we have in many narrations and we know this, the Holy Quran is actually a living entity. It understands. It interacts with you at a spiritual level. We have so many narrations that talk about this. In this world, what does the Holy Quran do if you actually open your heart to it? What does it do to you? What does it do to you if you learn it while you're young? What does it do to you if you enjoy it? You truly enjoy it. You force yourself to enjoy it. How much reward do you get if you struggle learning the Quran? This is all in this world. And then if you go in the afterlife where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the Holy Quran as a living entity. The Holy Quran will come in the afterlife as an entity that will bear witness, that will say things as a witness in the afterlife about those who recited the Quran. Every part of the Quran is a living entity. The hadith that talk about the Holy Quran in the grave, for instance, Alam al-Barzakh, if you are of those who recite certain verses or certain chapters of the Holy Quran, those chapters will come to you to protect you in the barzakh, in this intermediary world between the moment you die and the moment you are raised for resurrection. The same thing in the afterlife. The surah of the Holy Quran will come in their true shape based on their significance and their meaning in reality, not in our world, because in our world they're simply words. But what do these suar, what do these chapters of the Holy Quran, what do they stand for? What do they mean? What is their true reality? Surah Al-Waqa'ah, Surah Tabarak, Surah Yasin, Ayat Al-Kursi, Surah Al-Fatiha. We're going to know their true identity in the afterlife. This is the second meaning of this hadith. When the Holy Prophet says, It's that living entity that is the Quran. It's not a metaphor. 
It's not indirectly because of the verses of the Quran. The Quran represents everything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to share with humanity in the form of instructions, in the form of a constitution, in the form of a book. So now it has appeared in our reality in that format. So this is what will be seen in the afterlife as we talked again and again, explaining that in the afterlife things appear in their true form. That's the only difference between this world and the next. And we could go on and on here about the hadith, the teachings that have to do with the different types of rituals. And we understand how important they are. We understand that we have to perform them in the right way. But we also have to keep in mind that when we're performing all of these, that there is something beyond the external appearance, the movements, the recitation and uttering of the words that has to take place. At the level of the heart, at the level of the soul, something has to take place. Right? One of these narrations, I had it here, but let's skip it. We don't have time. It's an extremely long narration from Imam Sajjad when he talks about Hajj. Another example is this amazing long tradition, inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you the fortune to go to Hajj, to perform the pilgrimage. Make sure that when you do, before you do, make it a condition with yourself to read and study this hadith from Imam Sajjad with a man by the name of Shibli, in which the Imam asks him after he has performed the Hajj. He tells him, did you perform such and such ritual of the pilgrimage? And this man says, yes, I did. And the Imam tells him, asks him, so what was your intention when you performed it? And then you start seeing that the intent has to be that you are getting rid of your desires and your ego and your sins and leaving this world behind. This is the significance of these rituals. This is what you're supposed to have in mind. This is your spiritual state, your, your psychological state, your cognitive state as you go through the Hajj. And then the Hajj will matter. And then the Hajj will be transformative. Just walking around a building is not going to make it. It's not going to transform you spiritually. Simply walking back and forth between two little mountains and there's not much left of them today is not going to do it. There's something that has to happen spiritually while you're doing this. This is a means to something else. And this is the topic that we began with and I reiterate. We are not saying that therefore stop reading the Qur'an and stop praying and stop performing the Hajj. We're saying that you have to do these because you're a believer and you want to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah has explained to you how He wants to be obeyed. But don't think for a second that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking you to do these rituals blindly just to stand and sit and prostrate and walk around. and That's not the point of these. There's a spiritual significance behind these and you have to acquire knowledge and you have to use your reason and reflect on it. What does it mean that I'm asked to put my head on the ground? Does it have any significance or not? When I perform ruku', does it have significance or is it just some random act? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking me to do things that as a lot of people say now, you, you don't need to do yoga, just the acts of the movements of the prayer are, are enough. 
They're going to circulate, help you with the circulation of your blood in your body, and that's good. Okay, fine, if that is the case. But that's certainly not the spiritual transformation that is supposed to take place in you as a result of that prayer. The same thing with fasting. You're not doing this because, you know, now you're going on a keto diet or you're going gluten-free or you're going vegan. Fine if you get that additional healthy benefit from it. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is, if it's part of religion, there is a spiritual dimension to it. There is a spiritual dimension to zakah that you have to give charity. You take out of your money, of your belongings, of your possessions, and you give it. There's a spiritual growth that comes from this. There's a spiritual growth in reciting the Qur'an. And so on and so forth. So we need to understand these rituals. Not in the sense that, therefore, since I'm not feeling anything, I stop doing it. No. We have to understand them as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you a destination, which is your spiritual growth, and He's given you a map to get there. You can't get there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, unless you follow this map, this trajectory, this path. When I travel to another city, if I want to go to Toronto, the point is not the way to get to Toronto. The point is once I'm there, that's the destination, that's the objective. I can't lose track and think that my way there is what matters. The prayer is a means to attain a certain spiritual benefit. Fasting is a means to attain a spiritual benefit. Reciting the Quran, performing the Hajj, staying up at night, all of these are means to get there. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explained to us the way to get there. In some cases, there might be other ways to get there. This is where you fall into the mustahab and the mubah, and it's completely up to you. In other cases, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no, this is the exclusive path that you have to follow to get to that destination. He knows best. So no one can come back and argue that this is not working for me and I'm not feeling. No, no, there's a map that you're supposed to follow. Just don't get distracted and think that the way is the destination. The way is not the destination. The prayer gets you somewhere. The fasting gets you somewhere. The pilgrimage gets you somewhere. Okay? With all of that said, two quick narrations. The first one from Imam Zain al-Abidin in which he says, so hopefully this will show us the power of these words when they are understood. We've been talking about intentions and actions for a while. Imam Sajjad we saw many narrations in the same vein, in the same line before, in which he says, لا عمل إلا There is no action unless it is with intent, with intention. So now we understand how much is crammed how much significance and value and meaning is in those words? لا عمل إلا There is no action without intention. Okay? That's the first one. So that's your general rule. Another hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says لا قول إلا بعمل So there is no speech, there is no utterance unless there is action with it. Talk is cheap. Okay? لا قول إلا بعمل 
Don't say, I pray. Pray. Okay? وَلَا عَمَلَ إِلَّا بِنِيَّةِ And there is no action unless it is with intention. وَلَا نِيَّةَ And we talked about this, we touched on this. وَلَا نِيَّةَ إِلَّا بِإِصَابَةِ السُنَّةِ And your intent has to be matching. There has to overlap perfectly with, the whole Prophet says, as sunnah with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers to be correct or what we believe is the life and the actions and the teachings of the Holy Prophet and this is why we talked about there was a question last time what happens to someone who may not know what happens to someone who is not within our faith what do we do in those cases well this is our short answer the Holy Prophet is saying one, what is your intent, regardless of who you are? What is your intent in whatever you're doing? And two, to what extent are you actually matching the truth? To what extent are you actually matching what is right? You're matching what is the good, the real good, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows the good. Or, in our theological terminology, the sunnah. And that's why we said there might be two versions here. A weak and a strong way to match it. A weak way to match it is you don't know that you're matching it. You just happen to match it by accident. I intended to do good and you know what? It was good. Okay, so therefore I get some thawab for that. Of course that thawab is not going to match the thawab I would get when I know that this is what I'm supposed to do because it's the good and I do it and I achieve what I'm doing. Of course those two don't match. Those cannot be compared. There are people who go and they perform. We don't need to look at people outside of our religion. Let's look at our religion. Within our faith, within our customs, within our communities. We all know of the ahadith. Not long ago we just ended the Muharram season and the Arba'in season. The hadith explain the reward and the merits of those who perform the ziyarah of Imam al-Hussein The ziyarah of Imam al-Hussein on specific days is even more important. Tens or thousands of times more reward to the one who performs the ziyarah than performing a Umrah or performing a pilgrimage. Very clear. So two people may perform the ziyarah. They go to perform the ziyarah in Muharram, they go to perform the ziyarah in Arba'in. But their background is not the same. Their intentions are not the same. You might be living in Iraq and under social pressure, all of your neighbors everyone in your neighborhood is now going to start walking for Arba'in. You're shy, you're embarrassed that you're the only one who doesn't perform this social ritual, so you join in. We believe that you will still get a tawab. But is that a full intent to perform the ziyarah? Or, you look at the Narrations that talk about the reward that you get for performing ziyarat Imam Hussein in which 
you are told that it is thousands of times more as a source of reward than performing the pilgrimage, there's always a condition. And the condition is عارفاً بحقه. I walk to Imam Hussain I perform ziyarah of Imam Hussain to the extent that I understand what I'm doing, to the extent that I understand who is this man that I'm walking towards. And that's what's going to transform me. That's what's going to mean something at my level of intent. Because this is a spiritual stance. I'm making, it's a position here. My outside is matching my inside. I'm walking towards things that are supposed to be the highest values. I understand why he did what he did. I'm honoring that. I want to be part of that. When I do that, and to the extent that I understand what I'm doing, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you're going to get that reward. These two people cannot be compared. Both of them perform the ziyarah. The first one performed the ziyarah, let's call it under social pressure. The second one performed the ziyarah because they understand who Imam al-Hussein is and what this walk towards Imam al-Hussein means for them. It's going to be a spiritual revolution for them to, to make this walk. But you need the condition to be met. And that intent has to be there. And the other condition which we've been talking about since the beginning, you need the knowledge. You need to understand, you need to know who Imam Hussein is so that you can gain the full benefit of that ziyarah. Simply uttering the words is not going to do it and simply walking is not going to do it. Okay? Let's link it now to a little bit of the worldly dimension of these uh, lectures that we always try to say all of this can be applied in both there in a very practical way in our world day to day as well as spiritually as well as for the afterlife in this narration we're told there is someone there's a man who passed by the holy prophet and clearly there are parts missing in this hadith. There's something that happens, but we can understand basically this man went on to his daily affairs. He said, he said his salam to the Holy Prophet and he went on to his daily affairs. And the rest of the companions who were with the Holy Prophet could see this man hard at work. Okay, so that's the part that is not said. There's a man, he passes by the Holy Prophet, there's a salutation, and then he moves on. And then we hear, فَرَأَى أَصْحَابُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ Sallallahu alayhi wa alihi min jaladihi wa So the companions of the Holy Prophet saw from this man, they noticed how hard he is working and how he is exerting himself, tiring himself in the work that he's doing. We don't know what he's doing. He might be working in a garden, he might be working in the market, we don't know. He's hard at work and clearly exerting a lot of energy. So they said, Fakalu, Ya Rasulallah. So they say, oh, only, oh, messenger of God, if only all of this hard work that this man is doing, if only it was for the sake of God, in the way of God, in the path of God. So clearly he's doing something 
much more worldly, much more trivial in their eyes than doing anything in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so he, that's why I said he might be working in the market, he might be working in a, in a field somewhere. So they said, if only all of this was in the way of God, imagine how much reward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would give this person. Way of God to imply war? Most likely, most likely. فَقَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ Then the Holy Prophet said, إِنْ كَانَ خَرَجَ يَسْعَى عَلَى وُلْدِهِ صِغَارًا فَهُوَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ If this man has gone out and he's working this way, if all of his effort is for the sake of his young children, then all of these efforts are in the way of Allah. وَإِنْ كَانَ خَرَجَ يَسْعَى عَلَى أَبَوَيْنِ شَيْخَيْنِ كَبِيرَيْنِ and if all of this effort is so that he is for the sake of two elderly parents, then it is in the way of Allah. وَإِنْ كَانَ خَرَجَ يَسْعَى عَلَى نَفْسِهِ يَعِفُّهَا فَهُوَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ And if he has gone out and putting all of this effort so that he keeps his self decent or chaste, or away from having to beg and ask for others, from others, not falling into haram, for instance, then it is in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِنْ كَانَ خَرَجَ يَسْعَى رِيَاءً وَمُفَاخَرَةً فَهُوَ فِي سَبِيلِ الشَّيْطَانِ But if all of this work is being done only out of riya to show others that he is hard at work and to in vain pride, then and only then would it be considered in the way of the devil, in the way of the shaytan. And we can spend a very long time on this hadith. A first point, very quickly, is that clearly the reward for this person to be considered performing acts and rituals in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has nothing to do with the external appearance of what is happening. The companions were fooled. They did not consider any of the work that this man was doing for the sake of God. The Holy Prophet told him, told them, all of this is for the sake of God. If it's being done for himself, so that he does not need others, he does not become dependent financially, for instance, on others, he does not fall ever into haram, therefore he has to put in the energy now and the hard work now, if he's helping elderly parents, if he's helping young children, if he's helping his family, all of this is for the sake of God. The second notion is that it reminds us of how broad of a notion this notion of intention is. And we talked a lot about it earlier. We saw the hadith from the Holy Prophet telling Abu Dhar, make sure that you have a good intent for everything that you do, even when you eat and when you drink and when you sleep. This is what's going to make that act an act of worship. When you go to work, have an intent. Why are you going to work? It does not need to be some very high, lofty ideal of why you're going to work. These things that the Holy Prophet is mentioning, they are day-to-day -day things that we consider trivial. But the truth is, and inshallah we'll talk about that later, 
This is one, how you make things that in our eyes are trivial, how you make them sacred, how you make them rituals of worship, simply with intent. And two, in fact, those things are not considered trivial in our religion. Going to work to sustain yourself and to sustain your family and to help those who are needy, this is not trivial. This in itself is a very high form of worship. This is sacred. This is not a metaphor to say that it is sacred. This is at the foundation of our religion. So when the Holy Prophet is mentioning these examples, these examples specifically, there, are, there is a barrage of narrations behind each one of these and how these are acts of worship and how significant they are in our religion. And to come back, since I think we, we should stop here, to come back to what we started with, the notion of community. Imagine if you have a community where people think this way. When you go and you perform work, and that work is performed with the right intentions, then that work is considered work for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is sacred work. There is no distinction here between the work that you do, this is work work, and this is religious work. This act of worship that is happening between these walls here is perhaps not more important than what you're doing out there when you're going to school or when you're getting working hard to get that promotion or you're trying to feed your family or establish yourself or help your kids or whatever it else, else that it is that you may be doing. Okay, so everything starts from the intention. When you're doing this, what intent do you have behind it? And of course, this forces us always, again and again, always, all of this starts from, well, it depends on the knowledge you have. If you have the right knowledge, then you can have the right intention. When you know all of this, then now you have to ask yourself, why am I doing what am I doing? I have to reflect on it. There is no act without any intent behind it. There is always an intent, but the intent is not always intentional. Sometimes you're oblivious to it and heedless and ignorant of it, but it's there. If you were questioned or someone were analyzing you and your life and observing you, they could come up with the intent. There's always an intent. Make that intent intentional. Think about it. To bring us back to the notion that we talked about, a lot of this, if it's applied, is going to force us to live intentional lives. Our life in general is going to be intentional and every part of it is going to be intentional. Of course we're not going to be perfect. Of course there will be slip-ups and we are all weak and we all make mistakes. But at least we know where we stand. We know where we're supposed to head. We know the distance that we have to travel, where we have to put our energy, what we have to work on. And this works at an individual level, and this works at a community level. It works at a social level. Okay, so let's stop here, and inshallah, in the next time that we meet, we're going to go through the next topic in this uh, theme, which is the consequences of sincerity. So now that we've talked about all of this, we understand what it is, 
and we understand how it operates within us, let's assume that someone has reached that level and now there is an intent or there is a sincere intent and there's of course the negative of it. You have bad intent or you have good intent. How does that, what does that mean? What is the consequence of that in our lives, in this world and the next? Okay, so inshallah we're going to go into the practical consequences of intentions, ikhlas and niyyah in the uh, next muhabara. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين Questions, concerns, comments Um, I'll think about it more and, and bring something specific to it um, in, in the last part so after we cover the consequences uh, we'll talk a little bit more kind of to wrap up the topic and we will add a little bit on that on, on how to achieve ikhlas there are things mentioned um, there's a couple of things the first one is and inshallah we're going to touch on that uh, right at the beginning next time is to understand where the intention is coming from. The intention is coming from somewhere very deep within us. Okay, so it's a reflection of. Um, it, it, it's a reflection of who we truly are, very deep internally. It's a state. What's our n regular state? And that's why intent is. We always hear this question: Do I have to say the words? No, you don't have to say the words. The words may help. It, it just because we're physical creatures, right? So to hear it, to hear yourself say it, to force yourself to say it is going to help. But what's your internal state of mind? That's what matters. Um, the second thing is there are tricks that are given to us for the intent. To me, a huge trick, a huge clue to the tricks. For instance, when we're told in fiqh, at the beginning of the month of Ramadan, you can do one niyyah for the entire month. Why? Because there are people who may forget, right? 30 days is a long time for human beings, okay? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very easy. So long as you know generally what you're going to intend to do for the next 30 days, that's enough, you know? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that we're probably not going to be able to, you know, instant by instant have the niyyah. That should become eventually, that's what we aspire to. Fiqh is not written for what we aspire to. Fiqh is written as the minimal threshold to meet. Right? But it's also giving us a clue that generally speaking, it's like when we recite in, in Dua Kumail, Imam Ali salam, he says a word that to me it's, it's probably, I don't want to say it's impossible, 
um, but it's a very, very high, lofty standard. Right? I want to be in a state, my normal state is a state of servitude towards you. Con one continuous servitude. From the moment I'm born till the moment I die, I'm in one act of servitude towards you. Which means the intent has to be there the entire time. Imam Ali can say that. I can't say that. But I can aspire to it, and we're going to see a hadith that talk about this. Do you at least wish that you can go in that direction? Then that counts. When I wake up in the morning, maybe I can have in my alarm, intent. <laughs> What's my intent for today? That's it. At night, that's that, inshallah, we'll talk about it. The muhasabat al-nafs. How did my day go? Okay, how is then tomorrow, how is it supposed to go? And my next week, and my next month, my next year, what's my plan? Where is God in all of this? That's all that's needed, and then that's it. You've given direction, that's your intent. You've given direction to what you're doing. Maybe once a day, maybe ten times a day, I don't know. The five prayers are supposed to be the hook to bring you back to this. Okay, so these are kind of high level. I'll think about more, and there are books written about this. I'll see if there is something more uh, we can sink our teeth into. But that's in, in general. Allah khaliku.